Yeah, I go out and talk for a while, tell them stuff, and then uh, we really, then Robert comes out at 6.45. Are we full out there? Yeah. No, no. So you can have the law, and then I'm going to give Robert the law. But are, there, are people seated enough so there's somebody to talk to? There is no audience. That's what she needs to understand. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Hi. How are you? I wanted to introduce myself. My name is John Donvan. I am the, uh, the moderator and the host of uh, the Intelligence Squared debate series, and we're delighted to have you here in our new home. And um, I know that a lot of you have been to our debates before, so you've heard what I'm about to say. But for everybody else, uh, it's critical uh, because there are things that we ask you to do as members of the audience through the course of the evening. 
uh, that are critical to the actual results of the debate. We ask you, first of all, to be our judges. Um, you know what the motion is. Two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. And we ask you to vote uh, when you come in now on your view on that motion. And with the way we have you do that is there is a keypad at your seat. It's on the right-hand side. And when the time comes, which will be in a little while once the debate actually begins, I will ask you to pick up the keypad and vote uh, on whether or not you agree or disagree with that motion or are undecided about it. If you agree with it, you'll be pushing number one. If you disagree, you'll push number two. If you're undecided, you'll push number three. Then what we do at the end of the evening, having all of you listen to and measure the quality of the debates and the arguments that were presented, we ask you to vote a second time. And that time, the criterion is just slightly different. We're really asking you to tell us which side you feel actually presented the better arguments, maybe even changed your minds. But we're asking you to put aside your own convictions on this and tell us who actually did the better job of debate, because part of our goal here is to raise the level of public discourse. And we want to ask you to hold the debaters to to that standard. The other thing that happens in the debate is in the middle of the debate, we in our second round and we go in three rounds. The first and the third rounds are, are somewhat formal. The debaters speak uninterrupted in the middle. They can really mix it up and debate one another directly. But you and I stir the pot in that by asking them questions. So I will ask questions and then I'll come to you in the audience to ask questions of the debaters. This can be uh, daunting. It takes a lot of nerve to get up uh, with the microphone and ask a question. And it can also be especially daunting because I'm kind of tough about what the, how the questions should work. I need them to really be questions. Uh, I, 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 you know, if there's a question mark at the end of your statement appropriately, it's totally a question. Um, I need you to be terse, really think in terms of, listen to the debate, think of our motion and how your question will move people toward uh, a debate on this motion. That, please don't debate the debaters. Please don't do three-part questions. Uh, just because we, we wouldn't have the time to work through every part. Normally, when you ask a question, you can ask it to a debater, to a side in general. If the debaters then want to pick it up and debate it, that's what we're hoping for. That's what would be great. So uh, I'll point to you. Somebody in the uh, aisle will bring a mic to you. You should stand up, hold the microphone about a fist's distance away from your mouth so that the uh, audience can hear you, and just then just ask your question. I don't accept all questions is really what I'm saying. Sometimes they're very noble, but they belong to other debates. And um, we really want to keep it on focus for this. A couple of other things. Um, we are broadcasting uh, this debate Actually, we're live streaming it with our new partner, the Wall Street Journal, um, uh, WSJ Live. So uh, I think from this moment, actually, we're on the live stream. We also record the debate and turn it afterwards into a radio broadcast that is carried on about 180 NPR stations. And we also turn it into a television program that is carried on uh, Channel 13 here in New York. And because of that, um, we have microphones all over the place and a critical mass of cell phones will just just totally wreak havoc with the microphone. So I wanted to ask anybody who's not literally going to be tweeting about this. If you if you are going to be tweeting, we're fine with that. We like the publicity. But if you're not, there would just be too many phones on. So we want to ask you um, if you can shut them down. So. Um, at the end of the debate, oh, one other thing also because we're a radio broadcast, there's going to be a lot of 
sort of boilerplate things I say for television and radio. I'll be telling you again and again that I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator. <laughs> that was the second time. There will be many more to come. Uh, a few times I'm going to be asking you to applaud spontaneously. Uh, <laughs> But I think you'll want to applaud spontaneously. But there will be moments when, we, when we're, we're uh, in a sense, taking a break and coming back from a, from a radio break. I'll just raise my hand. And that, I think you'll get it. You'll, it always works. I sort of raise my hand and everybody applauds and then it dies away. And if you don't, I'm just going to come out and, and ask you for it. And uh, you already sound very lively and we like that. This is not like the presidential debates where the audience is enforced, has an enforced silence. We like the sense for our radio listeners in particular to know that you're here, that this is a, a live event. Um, so feel free to uh, register your approval or disapproval of the arguments you're hearing. You know, on the disapproval side, please don't go too far because we, 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 we really do not want this to be mean-spirited, the opposite, in fact. But, it, but it, you know, an, an occasional spontaneous guffaw is, is fine. But sort of hissing and booing, disruption, that sort of thing, not. But it really works best if you uh, applaud the side that, uh, that has made a point that you like to hear. So we really hope you enjoy this. We're delighted that our topic is crisscrossing so effectively with the uh, political election that's going on, as will some of our other debates throughout the season. So um, we're about to go. So um, I want to introduce uh, the gentleman who, who really started this and makes this possible in New York City. He's the chairman of the board of the Rosencrantz Foundation of an, an Intelligence Squared U.S., Bob Rosencrantz. And, and what, what Bob does is a lot of study, we both do, before the debate, to, to really figure out to, the, the way that we want to frame this. And so Bob is going to do that for us. He's going to talk us through what's at stake here and why we're talking about it now. So, Bob, why now? Why this debate now? Well, of course, this is election season, and we're all seeing the effects of huge amounts of money in uh, politics. So this is really a debate that is timely and especially pertinent uh, following the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United, which uh, created the whole super PAC phenomenon. And is this a debate that really has two valid arguments on both sides? I think it does. So the side, argue, the side that's cheering for super PACs, what do they have going for their argument? Uh, the biggest thing they have going for their argument is the principle of free speech. Uh, in order for speech to be heard, it needs money behind it. And the most important kind of speech of all is political speech. Uh, and critical political speech is, is essential because otherwise uh, Congress or the president could shut down speech that's critical. And the side arguing against? Uh, their best argument, it seems to me, is that things have gotten out of hand. There's just too damn much money involved in, in politics and uh, we're drowning out the voices of people who can't be heard because they don't have access to money to get on the airwaves. And one thing the Citizens United decision made uh, changed in 2010 is increased participation by corporations and unions. How does that change the game? Well, I think that the unions have always been a source of very, very big money in politics and almost always on the Democratic side, probably 98% or so. 
Corporations, on the other hand, have been uh, divided pretty equally between Democrats and Republicans, in part because they want to hedge their bets and in part because they don't want to offend any of their uh, customers. So in, in some sense, the, this uh, uh, legislation or I'm sorry, court decision really opens the door, not so much for corporations, but for wealthy individuals. All right, Bob, thank you very much again for making this event happen. And now let's welcome our debaters to the stage, everybody. Okay, thank you. And I, I just would like to invite one more round of applause for Bob Rosencrantz for making this possible. <laughs> Deep and durable and well-known by all of us is the influence and place of money in American politics. If you go to that famous quip uh, by one of the all-time politicos of American history, Mark Hanna, an Ohio Republican. This is what he said. There are two things that are important in politics. The first is money. And I can't remember what the second one is. <laughs> Hanna died in 1904. He did not have super PACs, but we do. And we have a debate. Two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still over-regulated. That is our motion. I'm John Donvan. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S., four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, all of whom have grappled with the question of where money fits into a system that we refer to as democracy. We debate, as always, in three rounds, then the audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters. Let's meet our debaters. On the side for the motion, two cheers for super PACs, David Keating, president of the Center for Competitive Politics. Your partner is Jacob Solemn. He is a senior editor at Reason Magazine. On the side arguing against the motion, Trevor Potter. He is president and general counsel of the Campaign Legal Center. And your partner is Jonathan Soros. He is a senior fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and co-founder of Friends of Democracy. We're going to introduce our debaters once again in more depth for our television broadcasts. And I know you just applauded your hearts out for them, but when I name them again, I'm going to ask you to do that one more time. Thank you. Our motion is two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. Let's meet our debaters and welcome first David Keating. And David, earlier this year, you became president of the Center for Competitive Politics. It represented a group that you also founded in a landmark case that was speechnow.org versus Federal Election Committee. Uh, Citizens United gets most of the credit for the fact that we have super PACs, but without SpeechNow, we would not have them at all. And in addition to that involvement, you also spent a lot of time in your career working on tax policy. So the question is, which is the more twisted set of legislation, <laughs> campaign finance or tax policy? Well, that's simple. The, um, the election laws, the tax laws are a model of clarity and simplicity. <laughs> 
by comparison. Yes. And the IRS is reasonable compared to the Federal Election Commission. <laughs> All right. Thank you, David Keating. Uh, your partner arguing for the motion, two cheers for super PACs, Jacob Sullum. Jacob, you are a senior editor at Reason Magazine, where the motto is Free Minds and Free Markets. You're also the author of Saying Yes in Defense of Drug Use. Jacob, you graduated from Cornell University, where you majored in both economics and psychology, psych and ec. And the question is, is that what equals a libertarian? Well, I did learn a lot about uh, politicians in my abnormal psych course. <laughs> All right. Our motion is two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. And here, arguing against the motion first, Trevor Potter. <laughs> Trevor, you are president and general counsel of the Campaign Legal Center and a former commissioner and chairman of the Federal Election Commission. But you may also know Trevor as the man behind Stephen Colbert's super PAC, Americans for a Better Tomorrow, Tomorrow. <laughs> you, you are an attorney and you've advised several uh, Republican presidential candidates. So how did you end up on Comedy Central? I answered my phone. <laughs> Easy enough. It could Steve, have been a Stephen Colbert called, said, can you explain what a PAC is? I laid it out, explained how to game the system. He said, are you willing to say that in public? All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Trevor Potter. And let's meet your partner, also arguing against super PACs, Jonathan Soros. <laughs> Jonathan, you are a senior fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and CEO of JS Capital Management. Um, you are also one of the co-founders of Friends of Democracy. And the Washington Post headline about this says it all. Son of liberal financier George Soros launches anti-super PAC super PAC. So how does that work? Well, we're never going to change any of these rules unless we can build some political power to do so. And right now, both political parties are locked into the status quo. And so the only way to do so is from the outside. So working from the inside. All right. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, our team of debaters. Now, this is a debate. It's a contest. One side will win and one side will lose. And in that debate, you, our audience, our live audience act as the judges. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote twice, once before the arguments and once again at the end. And the team whose numbers have moved your position, your vote on this proposition, the greatest, will be declared our winner. So let's register your first vote. Go to the keypads at your seat on the right-hand side. And the numbers one, two, and three are the only ones you need to worry about. Our motion is two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still over-regulated. And if you agree with this motion, push number one. If you disagree, push number two. And if you're undecided, push number three. You can ignore the other numbers. They're not live. And if you make a mistake, just correct yourself, and the system will lock in your last vote. And what we're going to do is hold that vote until the end of the debate when you vote the second time, and then we'll reveal both numbers. And the team whose numbers have moved the most on this motion, will be declared our winner. So on to round one, opening statements from each of our debaters in turn. They will be seven minutes each. And speaking first, up for the motion, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. David Keating. He is president of the Center for Competitive Politics, 
Before this, he was executive director of the Club for Growth and president of SpeechNow.org, an organization that he founded to protect free political speech. Ladies and gentlemen, David Keating. Well, thank you. I think largely what we have tonight is a debate about what about the First Amendment and what it means and whether we still value the First Amendment. Do we want to keep the First Amendment the way it was written or do we want it to say something else? And who will say what that something else is? First, let's review what it says. It's pretty simple, actually. Uh, the part that we're talking about tonight is Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. Well, I'm sorry to inform that we have a lot of laws abridging freedom of speech and regulating speech. The Supreme Court has said there are now 30 different types of regulations on political speech. We have laws and regulations that come to close to 400,000 words. But these words are not clear enough. So the Federal Election Commission has already issued close to 1,900 advisory opinions that you must review to know what the law means. And on top of that, there have been nearly 7,000 enforcement actions by the Federal Election Commission during its history. To really understand the law, you need to understand all that. And the fact is, no one does understand what the election law means. In fact, if you want to speak out about politics and elections, you have to hire a lawyer like this one over here. I don't know how much he charges, but most grassroots groups probably can't afford it. And if they don't have a lawyer, they're probably going to make mistakes. I lived under this working at a political committee. I saw the regulations firsthand. And we, a lot of us, were getting very upset with how complicated it was and the fact we couldn't get an answer to many of our basic questions. On top of that, in 2002, Congress passed the McCain-Feingold Act. And for many of us, that was the last straw. A portion of that, not all that law was bad, but there was one portion that many of us found offensive, no matter what our views on politics. Part of it said that within 60 days of an election, a group that you were a member of could not run an advertisement mentioning the name of a congressman if it aired on radio or TV. That was illegal. Now, the court has overturned that, but it took them a number of years to do that. I thought that was outrageous. And there is no group fighting on the political front for the First Amendment. We hear about groups fighting for Second Amendment rights, but not First Amendment rights. That's why I started SpeechNow.org, because I think we need a group to fight for our political free speech rights. Now, I designed this group in a way that I thought would allow us to be effective. In fact, uh, one of our panelists who doesn't support free speech, unfettered free speech, has adopted the SpeechNow.org model, which is now called a super PAC. And basically, here's how it works. It's Americans getting together and pooling their money. I talk to you. I make the case as to why you should donate money so then we can talk to other Americans. That's what the speech now model was. There was only one problem with it. It was illegal to do that. So the speech with the assistance of a couple of public interest law firms, sued the FEC and to make a long story short. We won that case speech versus FEC 
is what created the super PAC. Now, let me explain how these groups are actually functioned, because these are different from normal PACs. These are different from political parties. These are literally Americans getting together independently. The Federal Election Commission calls these groups independent expenditure only committees because that's all they can do. We don't make any donations to candidates. We don't make any donations to political parties. We don't coordinate our speech with the candidates. We don't coordinate our speech with the political parties. All of our donors over $200 are disclosed to the public on the Internet, on the FEC website. And all of our spending is donated, is reported as well. That is what the media has come to call a super PAC. So when you think about it, what's wrong with that? It's basically a group of people getting together to saying, hey, we want to speak to our fellow Americans about what direction we think the country should go, what leaders we should elect, who should represent us. And we're not going to give any money to the candidates or the parties. That's what a super PAC is. Now, this model has been so popular that there are now 805 of them that have formed since June of 2010, when super PACs first became legal. Now, I want to tell you a story of how important money can be in making speech. Uh, and I will go back to 1967, when a U.S. senator named Gene McCarthy wanted to run for president. The incumbent president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, is a very powerful political figure. Today, most people would think it'd be impossible to take down a sitting president in a primary, especially if you started in November previous to the election year. But Gene McCarthy did it. And you know how he did it? He went to a handful of people, about five people, and they gave the equivalent in today's dollars of $10 million dollars. $10 million. Now, that's the kind of money that we're talking about in super PACs. But back then, the money went directly into Gene McCarthy's campaign committee. Gene McCarthy was opposed to the Vietnam War. He wanted to make his run for president based on opposing the Vietnam War. And he wanted to help build a movement to help end the Vietnam War. He couldn't have done it without those contributions. He couldn't have done it. And you know what? He did it. He didn't win the nomination, but he forced LBJ out of the race. And it's the only time since these campaign only since we passed these campaign restrictions, we have never seen a sitting president removed by a challenger. And I dare say it probably won't happen for many, many years. So if you believe in the right of the people to change their government, we have to give people the right to do everything they can to speak to other Americans and independent political groups are the way to do it. Thank you. Thank you, David Keating. Our motion is two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated and here to debate against the motion. Uh, Trevor Potter, he is president and general counsel of the Campaign Legal Center and a former commissioner and chairman of the Federal Election Commission. He is also the lawyer behind the creation of Stephen Colbert's PAC, Americans for a Better Tomorrow, Tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, Trevor Potter. Thank you, John. 
it may surprise our worthy opponents, but all of us on the stage tonight recognize and celebrate the importance of the First Amendment, the right each of us has as citizens to criticize the government and speak freely. We are all American patriots in this room tonight, not supporters of King George III. <laughs> None of us believe that the crown or our government should be free of criticism. But our opponents want this to begin and end as a debate about the First Amendment and only about their view of the First Amendment. They want to ignore the rest of the Constitution and the functioning of the government that we, the people, created. The Constitution created a Congress that represents the will of the people, the voters. It created a president whose job is to faithfully execute the laws passed by Congress. What we have learned over the last 200 years, by sad experience, is that our government can be corrupted by campaign money so that it primarily responds to the sources of money that fund elections, special interests, and big political contributors and spenders, rather than representing the people and seeking the common good. So tonight, I'm going to look at how campaign money can corrupt our government and why, for 100 years, there have been limits on money spent in politics to try and control that corruption. Then my debating partner, Jonathan Soros, will explain why super PACs and their related nonprofit C4s and C6s only make the possibility of corruption greater. Theodore Roosevelt began this national discussion in 1905 after being elected president with huge contributions from Wall Street. He actually had Mark Hanna, and Mark Hanna had what we would call super PAC money, unlimited contributions from corporations that elected Roosevelt. Afterwards, those corporations came to him for their reward, which they expected would be less government regulation. Roosevelt responded by saying to Congress, all contributions by corporations to any political committee or for any political purpose should be forbidden by law. Directors should not be permitted to use stockholders' money for such purposes. Later, he said, every special interest is entitled to justice, but none is entitled to a vote in Congress to a voice on the bench. Congress reacted to Roosevelt's call by passing the Tillman Act in 1907, forbidding corporate political contributions in federal elections. Later in 1947, the Taft Act extended this prohibition to labor unions and to independent expenditures. Roosevelt and Congress believed that the election of representatives of the people to Congress should be left to individual citizens and voters, not corporate or union interests, almost always seeking special legislative favors in return. Under President Richard Nixon, these prohibitions were violated because of a lack of disclosure. Then, in the Watergate scandal, these hidden violations became public. We learned that the Department of Justice had dropped an antitrust case against ITT 
in return for $400,000 given to finance the Republican convention where Nixon wanted it. We might never have known that, except an ITT lobbyist wrote it all down in an internal memo, which then saw the light of day. The result was that after Watergate, Congress passed new reform laws and tried to require the disclosure of all money given for political purposes. These laws were later revised and strengthened in the McCain-Feingold law in 2002. As Senator Alan Simpson said at that time, too often members' first thought is not what is right or what they will believe, but how it will affect fundraising. Who, after all, can seriously contend that a $100,000 donation does not alter the way one thinks about and quite possibly votes on an issue? The goal of each of these laws was to prevent actual corruption, the selling of government action or inaction in return for financial support for candidates and campaigns. Just as important, though, has been the goal of avoiding the appearance of corruption. As the Supreme Court said in the Buckley case in 1976, Congress has the right to deal with the reality or the appearance of corruption inherent in a system permitting unlimited financial contributions. The Supreme Court also recognized one other reality in that case, which is central to our debate today. There is a significant difference between my speaking myself or giving my money to someone else for their speech. My own speech and my own words has higher First Amendment protection than a contribution. That brings us to the world of super PACs. They were created, as we've heard, by the Supreme Court Citizen United decision and the D.C. Circuit's Speech Now case. The majority in Citizens United, overturning previous decisions, said that in their view of the First Amendment, corporations had the same right as individuals to make unlimited independent expenditures in federal elections because such spending does not give rise to corruption or the appearance of corruption. The court based this new, somewhat novel view that independent spending can never corrupt on two important predicates. The spending must be totally independent of candidates and political parties, and it must be fully disclosed so that in the words of Justice Kennedy and Citizens United, the public can see whether elected officials are in the pockets of so-called moneyed interests. So are their spending totally independent of candidates? Do we have full disclosure? Jonathan Soros will tell us in a few minutes. Thank you, Trevor Potter. And a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two who are fighting it out over this motion. Two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overrated. You have... Oh, Sorry, not overrated. I'm going to say that again so that, so that that can be edited out. It's great to control the process. Two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. 
You have heard two opening statements and now on to the third to debate for the motion. Two cheers for super PACs. Uh, a senior editor at Reason Magazine and Reason.com, an award-winning journalist and author of the critically acclaimed books, saying yes and for your own good, Jacob Sullivan. Thanks. I feel a little bit underqualified for this debate because I think I'm the only panelist who has not created a super PAC. <laughs> Although I briefly contemplated starting an anti-anti-super PAC super PAC. It's, it seemed too complicated to me, but maybe Trevor could help me out. Um, so I'm talking instead from the perspective of somebody who's been writing about civil liberties issues for about 25 years now. And I see this as fundamentally an issue of freedom of speech. Consider the legal situation before the Citizens United case. Wealthy individuals were free to speak without limit. Jonathan's father, for example, spent about $24 billion during the, oh, excuse me, million dollars uh, during the 2004 election season to defeat George W. Bush. And more power to him. Uh, media corporations, such as the ones that own uh, Fox News and the New York Times, were also free to speak without limit. Parties and candidates could spend as much as they wanted on political messages, although the contributions to them were limited. By contrast, unions, businesses, and nonprofit advocacy groups such as the NRA or the ACLU could not talk about their issues on the air close to an election if they happened to mention the name of a candidate for federal office. Furthermore, as David mentioned, uh, people of lesser means could not get together and pool their resources to use for election-related messages unless they registered with the FCC, FEC and were subject to strict contribution limits. Now, people often overlook what was actually at issue in the Citizens United case, this was a documentary that was produced by a conservative group, Citizens United. It was called Hillary the Movie. Um, they wanted to air it during the 2008 election season, and they were prohibited from doing so. Why? First of all, uh, it mentioned a candidate for federal office. Uh, she was running for the Democratic presidential nomination at the time. And two, it made her look bad. Now, whatever you think about Hillary Clinton or about this particular movie about her, how can that possibly be consistent with a constitutional provision that says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. The Supreme Court concluded that it could not. Um, and it also concluded that the First Amendment um, made it, uh, it forced it to override an earlier rule that said you could not engage in express advocacy if you were a corporation or a union, meaning you explicitly were advocating the election or defeat of a candidate. Now, you frequently hear a couple of arguments in response to this decision uh, from people who didn't like it. Uh, first of all, they say money is not speech. Well, that's literally true, but you do need money in order to get your message across to a mass audience. Now, suppose Congress passed a law saying uh, newspapers uh, can exist, but they can't spend any money. Or newspapers can exist, but they can only spend up to this amount of money. Clearly, that would be uh, abridging the freedom of the press. Similarly, if Congress said, you can spend as much as you want if you're a newspaper, but we're going to limit how much you can take in from advertisers and, and readers. Um, so once you understand that this is really controlling money, in effect, is controlling speech, um, I think you also have to recognize that, that loosening these regulations on speech does not mean empowering people to buy elections. Why? Because the messages that you pay for still have to persuade voters. You're still talking about convincing people to vote a certain way. Um, there are a number of striking illustrations from recent elections that show you that money can't buy you love. And I'll just give you a couple of them. One from 2010, Linda McMahon, who's trying again this year. She spent $46 million of her own money on a Senate campaign in Connecticut. It was nearly $100 for every vote she received. She lost by 12 points. Um, 
this year, uh, Jeff Flake won the Republican nomination for the Senate in Arizona. Even though he was outspent two to one, he won by 48 points. So clearly money is not the whole story. Um, it is nevertheless true that on, on in general, the people who win tend to spend more. But it's also true that stronger candidates tend to attract more money. Well, what makes a candidate strong? There are various uh, characteristics that you can imagine that would make people both better able to raise money and better able to get votes. Charisma, popular policy positions. But one of the most important is incumbency. Um, incumbency gives people tremendous advantages in terms of visibility, the power to dispense pork, name recognition, uh, and the uh, re-election rates for members of Congress are, are insanely high. I mean, historically, in the past few cycles, 90% or more, even in the last, in the 2010, when Democrats lost a bunch of seats, it was still about 85%. So incumbents have a huge advantage, and they use campaign finance regulations to reinforce that advantage. One, one great example is the so-called Millionaire's Amendment, which was part of the McCain-Feingold Act. It said that if you face an opponent who is uh, spending his own money, he's rich, he's, he's financing his own campaign, then we're going to lift the limits on the contributions you can get. So this was clearly designed to help out incumbents who are facing self-finance self challengers. Uh, another argument you often hear is that corporations are not people. Well, that's also literally true, but corporations are created by people. I mean, not created by robots or dolphins or, or extraterrestrials. Um, and they're created to, to achieve certain goals. So the question in Citizens United was whether uh, people lose the right to freedom of speech when they organize themselves as corporations. I think people tend to think when you hear the word corporation of these huge businesses like Walmart or ExxonMobil, but, you know, every one of us works for a corporation. Uh, the, this debate tonight is sponsored by a corporation. Uh, the groups that are, are complaining that corporations have too much influence over politics are themselves corporations, right? So you have to understand that corporations overwhelmingly consist of small businesses and nonprofits, not these huge, huge businesses. Um, and they represent all sorts of points of view um, and, all, and, and take on all sorts of issues. Uh, our moderator, by the way, works, works for a corporation, uh, Walt Disney Company, correct? Yes, and uh, he had this privilege before Citizens United that most corporations did not. They were allowed to talk about politics on the air, even if it meant mentioning a candidate for federal office. Now, that was a, a, an exemption, the media exemption for media corporations that journalists took for granted, but it's very hard to justify under, under the First Amendment, because when you talk about freedom of the press, you're not, not talking about the freedom of members of professional news organizations. You're talking about the freedom to use technologies of mass communication. That's a freedom that we all have. That's all guaranteed to all of us by the First Amendment. So by lifting the restrictions on the money that people could collect and spend on political messages, these two decisions, Citizens United and Speech Now, signal that freedom of speech is not a privilege that's reserved to billionaires or to media corporations or to politicians, it's a right that belongs to all of us, no matter how we choose to organize ourselves. And I think we're seeing benefits from that in terms of diversity of voices and greater competition in elections that we can talk about later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob Sullum. Our final debater, and he is speaking against the motion, two cheers for super PACs, money in politics is still overregulated, is Jonathan Soros. Jonathan is Chief Executive Officer of JS Capital Management and a Senior Fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and co-founder of the Super PAC Friends of Democracy. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Soros. Thank you. And I can see that we're going to have a lot to talk about tonight, but my partner Trevor Potter laid out the case for why, in response to the First Amendment, we still have an important interest in mitigating the corruption 
that can result from, e from even independent political activity, but, but from, in particular, from contributions to candidates. I'm going to take us on a closer look at the proposition itself, two cheers for super, super PACs, and suggest that we don't even have the rules that super, pa super, super PACs were premised on. Mr. Keating laid out a very rosy picture of what super PACs are, but that don't really resemble what they are in fact. After 40 years of Supreme Court intervention, what we have is more loophole than law. Let's start with the issue of independence. As my partner mentioned, the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that speech that is independent of campaigns can't be corrupting and therefore can't be restricted. Let's set aside for a moment how ridiculous that statement is, that if somebody showed up and said, I'm going to spend a billion dollars to support candidates who favor position X or position Y, that that's not going to have some influence on candidates or elected officials. We'll leave that aside for a moment and just look at what independent really means today, because the rules around what independent is for super PACs are basically non-existent. There are, in effect, only two rules that apply. One, candidates may not share inside information for what they're thinking and what their resources are with a super PAC. And the super PAC may not give a contribution directly to a campaign. Obviously, they can give lots of things of value indirectly, like spending lots of money on television. There are more rules about what Goldman Sachs partners can say to each other than there are about what super PACs can say to candidates. We've all seen the joke that this leads to. My partner's super PAC, Americans for a Better Tomorrow Tomorrow, has been referenced several times. It's one of the best pieces of political theater that has happened in the last 24 months. I would strongly suggest if you haven't seen it, you go online and find it. It's really funny. But what we're seeing in that, and they provide a tremendous example, is that there are, in effect, no lines between super PACs and candidates. Let's just give a couple of examples. Candidates can raise money for super PACs. They can show up at their fundraisers and they can raise money at least up, and up to the $5,000 federal limit. But then what happens after they leave? Who knows? We all know, at least in the presidential election, the super PACs are being run by long-term aides of the candidates in both instances. Candidates can endorse super PACs. You hear Mitt Romney talking about my super PAC. And just in the last couple of weeks, as we watched the conventions, we heard about Carl Rove, who, of course, was senior advisor to President Bush and to many other Republicans, giving briefings about his super PAC around Tampa. And last week in Charlotte, Rahm Emanuel, who had been at one time uh, White House chief of staff and was the honorary chairman of the Obama campaign, left that position and the next day was giving interviews on the floor of the convention about how he was now tapped to be the lead fundraiser for the Obama-aligned super PAC. So clearly, independence under the current rules is a joke. That, in effect, leaving aside what's happened in the super PAC, has undermined something we thought we had before. We thought we had contribution limits. Again, as my partner described, for very good reason, to avoid the issues of political co corruption that come with large contributions to candidates. Now, those rules still technically exist. You can still only give... $2,500 to a candidate. You can only give $25,000 or whatever the limit is to a party. But you can then turn around and give $25 million to a super PAC that's working essentially as a surrogate for the campaign. Now, let's remember that those $2,500 and $25,000 are irrelevant to most of the population anyway. It's only 1% of 1% of the population that's giving north of $10,000 a year to uh, to 
to those entities. Well, now with super PACs, we've seen that shrink even further. So 200 people account for 80 percent of the money that was raised for super PACs, at least as of the last filing. Lastly, let's talk about transparency. It's true. Super PACs do have to disclose their donors and their expenditures. It's something transparency, something the Supreme Court speaks glowingly of in Citizens United and in other cases. But there's a loophole that you can drive a billion dollars through. Right? You don't have to give your political money to a super PAC. You can give your political money to a so-called social welfare organization or corporations can give them to industry groups. And those can do almost exactly the same thing that super PACs can do. And they don't have to disclose their donors. So when people say how much money is being spent in this election, the answer is we actually don't really know. We know that it will be more than ever before, but we don't know exactly how much and we don't know exactly where it's coming from. These are problems that can be addressed. We can have rules on transparency that address disclosure of all political spending that's related to the election. We can have rules, coherent rules around independence that require that super PACs are at least an arm's length distance from the campaigns. We need a functioning enforcement agency. And I hope that we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about the dysfunction of the FEC later on. But none of this will make a difference without an alternative. A friend of mine likes to say that Transparency alone is like the webcam that's at the, that was at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico showing us the deepwater horizon well. It shows you everything that's spewing into the Gulf, but it doesn't do anything to fix it. We need an alternative. We need a system of citizen-funded elections that allow candidates to run for political office without dependence on large contributions and big donors. That's commonly known as public financing, but when you think about it as a system that is designed to, to change the incentives of candidates, then it becomes something slightly different. If you think about a system we have in New York, where if you're participating in the system, $175 contribution is matched six to one. What's the result? It's transformed the way that funds are raised for city offices here in New York. Instead of going to the plaza or the Waldorf, you're going to people's living rooms and dining rooms, talking to normal folks, constituents about what the interests of, of their community are. So if the premise of this debate had been money in politics is badly regulated, I would have happily switched sides and sat over there and argued that case. But the answer to the current lawlessness is better rules, not less of them. Thank you, Jonathan Soros. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and you in the audience. Our motion is this, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still over-regulated. We have two teams of two arguing it out. David Keatham and Jacob Sullum are arguing for two cheers. They say that in a world where uh, political speech depends on money, um, you don't want to put limits on either of those things, that in fact super PACs and the spending of money in politics has the uh, effect of extending and widening political discourse and that attempts to regulate it usually are instigated by politicians who are already sitting in office and don't want their competition uh, to be financed and uh, elected either. On the other side, uh, Trevor Potter and Jonathan Soros are making the argument against super PACs. They're saying that unlimited money puts people into office who are then beholden to the suppliers of the unlimited money. The larger the amount, the more beholden that they'll be, especially if the source of the money 
is secret. They say that what's needed is a better and saner system of regulation, but that regulation there must be. I want to put a question to the side that is arguing for super PACs. Your, your opponents have, uh, have really hammered at the theme that money is corrosive in politics, essentially that votes, votes can be bought. And I didn't hear in your statements from either of you that you are especially agitated about that phenomenon. David Keating. Well, there is really no evidence that votes can be bought. The voters still... <laughs> no, come on. We... Out of 58 candidates who used 500,000 or more of their own money in federal races in 2010, fewer than one in five won. So my point is simple, that money does not control the outcome of the election. I'm not saying money isn't important, but it's, only, it's just one factor. I do also want to point out a lot of what you just heard from Jonathan is just simply wrong about the regulations. He said, for example, we don't know how much is spent in the election. That's simply not true. Any independent expenditure that is run in the election needs to be reported to the Federal Election Commission. That is a law. Now, you can argue about whether people are abiding by the law or not, but they, I think, by and large, people are reporting their independent expenditures. Right, now, go, there are other things, perhaps, let, John, let, that are let, not. But let me um, let you come back to some of the points, because you're raising a couple of things that I want to let this side respond to. And the okay. first of those is your response to my question that, that yeah, money is necessary, money plays a part, but that money ultimately isn't nearly as corrosive, corrosive as your side has been talking about. It's not that bad a problem. Uh, take that, Trevor Potter. Well, we're talking about two different things. David's talking about whether you can guarantee you're going to win an election if you spend a lot of your own money. Uh, that's, we're not saying that. What we're saying is that we have a history in this country, it's human nature, that candidates who become office holders are going to be grateful to the people who put them there if they can identify somebody who spent an enormous amount of money to elect them they're going to feel beholden to them okay. rather than everyone so else. So with that clarification, let me bring that back to the side, Jacob Sullivan. Yeah, I mean, actually, it often goes unnoted that uh, in most states, it was perfectly legal for corporations and unions to spend money on, on political campaigns, pr even prior to Citizens United. And there's no evidence that the states that allowed uh, unlimited spending by unions and corporations were more corrupt than the states that didn't. You would expect there to be some evidence, if, that's, if, if it's the case, that, that money is corrupting. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case. There isn't actually not. I mean, it seems commonsensical that obviously money buys people's votes. But in fact, if you look at the research that's been done, uh, there's very little evidence uh, that uh, legislators are actually driven by uh, the campaign don donations they're receiving as opposed to uh, their party's interests, their constituents' interests, uh, things that they might think might appeal to, the vote, to voters who elect them. And by the way, I find a lot of that at least as troubling as, as selling your vote for, uh, for money. I mean, I think that is something to be concerned about, selling your vote for money. But uh, I think we should be more focused on the actual policies being produced by politicians. And if they're good policies for bad reasons, I prefer that to bad policies for good reasons. Um, so, you know, for a politician to do something like take other people's money from around the country and spend it on, spend it on some pork barrel project in his district and then go and brag to voters about this and say, reelect me, look how great I am. He's basically stealing other people's money from around the country and using that money to buy the votes of the right. voters. And to me, that's uh, at least equally troubling. 
So the side arguing against perfectly you, legal. Your, your opponents are saying that there is no evidence that, in fact, politicians will be influenced in office by contributions from donors as they were running for office. Jonathan Soros or Trevor Potter, do you want to take that on? So well, maybe just very quickly first, without getting I think we could get into a very te technical debate, but issue advertising is not disclosed. Right? So in that, there's a lot of that going on this summer. It doesn't flow through independent expenditure committees, and so it does, doesn't get disclosed. So in the aggregate, we actually don't know the answer. So I don't think we want to get bogged down on that. I think one, part of the, one, one of the things we should think about here is the, the, the definition of corruption in the first instance, and because we're not really only talking about buying a vote, that, that there's actually a deal that says, you know, I'm going to hand you this money and you're going to vote this way. We're talking about a... That, that does that is an issue that can be prosecuted. It's you know, it, it doesn't happen. Can, can I stop you just just to the bottom? Yeah. And I will let you continue. But they're saying there really is no evidence that there really is no evidence that politicians will perform in office according to how they were funded on the way to office. Well, what they said was there's no evidence of corruption. That would be a great surprise to all those people sitting in jail across the country because they were the subject of FBI stings where they took money for official action. Uh, there are people in a variety of state legislatures. Uh, they're members of Congress who have freezers full of cash. Okay, but that's not for official actions. Those are not members. Those are direct bribes. Those are not campaign contributions. Yeah, he's got. We're you. talking that's about two different things. <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, you know, that's, that's couple, couple a couple weeks ago, the uh, governor of Alabama uh, was returned to jail. Uh, for having taken a campaign contribution and then given someone an official appointment for it. I I'm not saying everyone does this. I'm saying two things. First, it definitely has happened across the country and in our history. There's a long uh, series of affidavits in the McCain-Feingold litigation and testimony from members of Congress and, not surprisingly, former members who feel freer to speak about it, saying, I see votes affected all the time by where the money came from, which industry was being affected. And that's the underlying corrosive problem, plus the amount of time that these members spend, which is now estimated at up to 70% of their working days, raising money. Those we're, are the problems we're we We're talking face. about a couple of different things David here. What we're talking about here is the ability of Americans to get together as in groups together to speak to each other and to speak to other Americans. And you can't point to a single member of Congress, to a single independent expenditure, where they have felt this kind of pressure. It hasn't happened, and it's not going to happen. Now, we can argue about the rules that we may need to ensure the independence of these groups, but we think these groups should be able to independently raise as much and speak as much to the American people. The difference between Americans getting together and speaking to other Americans is one thing. Americans and contributing directly to candidates may be a separate issue. I'd also like to point out that before the speech now decision and the Citizens United decision, there were many states, in fact, a majority of states in the country that allow unlimited contributions, not only to independent expenditure committees, but to the candidates themselves. And if I think what we should be looking at is the quality of the governments in those states. And Pew, along with Governing Magazine, Pew Charitable Trusts and Governing Magazine, rated the states for quality of governance, efficiency of providing services. And the states, six of the best managed states in the country, 
were states where there were unlimited contributions allowed to these type super PACs, and most of these states also allowed in, uh, unlimited contributions to the candidates. So good government, efficient government is consistent with people having full free speech rights. All right, so two, two attacks have been made on your, on your argument that money is corrupting. Number one, they say there's no evidence that politicians are, once in office, are arguing, are, are, are uh, uh, operating as uh, agents of the people who funded them. And secondly, that there is superior or equally good government in states that have unlimited contribution. So let, let's John go back to the first one for a second. I think, you know, in the first instance, I, I think Mr. Keating is, is fighting yesterday's battle as it, as it relates to whether groups are allowed to gather together and form super PACs. They are. The question is, should there be rules around that and what should those rules be? Our principal argument of ours is that those rules are virtually non-existent now, and that's a real problem. You're suggesting that there's no evidence of independent expenditures corrupting. I would say we're at the early stages. This is kind of like the year after they invented television. We're looking at television ads, right? We're seeing the first wave of these independent expenditures. And so not clear that, that, that that's true, but we're actually not even arguing that that shouldn't happen. We're not arguing that people shouldn't be allowed to come together in groups and uh, and and speak in a in a collaborative voice in a collective voice. We are arguing that if the evidence presents itself that that is in fact corrupting, that you might want to go back and consider regulating that activity as well. But what we are saying is that the rules around independence and and separation from the candidates are clearly not there. Jacob, so, so, so I could I just ask just a quick question? So. Do we now have unanimous agreement on the panel that super PACs should be permitted? Are no, we all we in agreement on least, that? That would be great because then what, we, what we, we just said was that we are starting the first year of this wave of money in federal elections. Uh, we don't know yet what the effect is going to be. And what Jonathan just said was if we find out that they have the same corrupting potential that contributions have been found to have, found by the Supreme Court to have, based on uh, lengthy trials, that then they too uh, will have to look at whether they should be limited. One of the things that the court did, as I explained in my opening comment, is to say there's a difference between our own independent speech and a contribution to something. The Supreme Court has never faced this question of what happens when you take your own money and you contribute to one of these super PACs and somebody else then decides how to spend the money and what to do on the advertising. Is that really your own independent speech, which the court has said can't be limited? Or is that a contribution to a group and they have found contributions can be limited to prevent the demonstrated danger of corruption? Jacob Sullivan. I think there's a problem here with the definition of corruption. I mean, uh, if you take a very broad definition of it, it's basically any inappropriate consideration, right, that, that causes you to vote a certain way. Well, uh, some of it is actual quid pro quo corruption, where you hand a guy a pile of cash and you say, vote my way, and that's definitely illegal if, if you can prove it. Um, but if what you're saying is that politicians tend to be grateful for people who support them, or two people is more than that, it's true, but that would apply to celebrity endorsements that would apply not just to super PACs, but obviously also to rich people spending their own money independently, which has always been legal. Um, it would apply to, you know, voting a certain way because you like the way the lobbyist from that corporation dresses. You think she's pretty. 
Um, I don't think that's illegal, but uh, it seems improper. Um, you can vote for terrible policies for all kinds of, of reasons. I think we should be focused more on the policies. I mean, people vote for terrible policies because they have crazy ideologies that drive them to do it. Um, you know, so I, I don't know why we're focused on this one particular area where there's potential for uh, improper considerations when there are all kinds of other considerations uh, that people might deem improper. And shouldn't we be focusing more on the results the performance that people actually deliver once they're elected. Is it so, good performance? Is, is it bad? I, and it, part of that whole process is being able to speak on both sides of that. I want to move on, and I, just give me a second, and I'll, I'm going to ask your permission for this. I, I want to move on to the second point that David was raising before when I interrupted him. So do you want to respond to that point? And then I'm going to go back to where David was talking before about the actual execution of the rules and regulations. Sorry, which one was that? No, you can, you can answer. You can say what you want to say, but let's stop after that. Okay, sure. So, let, so, so just in responding to this question of the corrupt, I think that there are important features that distinguish the different types of influence from the influence of money. Right? It, in the first instance, it, with, with, with moneyed interest, you're talking about a, a class of individuals who have a disproportionate and, and clear, uh, a clear influence over the political process. You made a comment in your opening statement that the increase of money, instead of the increase of spending, uh, has generated more diversity of thought. Well, I don't think that we can rely for political diversity on disagreements between rich people. Right? That's not a political process that allows for a full and open debate. And, with, and so we'll talk about results. Not let's, let's, rich let's, talk, let's talk for let's talk for about results for a moment. Right. Because when we talk about corruption, we talk about the appearance of corruption. What we're talking about is the integrity of the of the system of representative government. It's about the belief that citizens have that the people who they elect to office are representing them. And the evidence shows that less than 10 percent of Americans in a Gallup poll believe that their elected representatives are actually working in their interests. That's a dangerous place for a democracy. Okay, to let's be. keep going on uh, this. Uh, I mean, there is, the, the problem with this standard, this crazy standard, and I grant you, it was endorsed by the Supreme Court, but it's still insane. Uh, the appearance of corruption, that, that we need to prevent the appearance of corruption. So that means the more that Jonathan and Trevor go around talking about corruption and how horrible it is and how everybody's corrupt, and of course money buys votes and everybody knows it, even if it's completely false, they go around talking about it. Now everybody's worried about corruption. That justifies whatever regulations they're proposing. It has this sort of circular quality to it. Um, I don't think it should hinge on the appearance of corruption. Maybe it should appear, uh, hinge on the reality of corruption, although I don't buy this argument at all that uh, the fear of act, even actual corruption, quid pro quo, Corruption justifies restrictions on speech. And the Supreme Court has basically said it does. I think they were wrong. I think that, that, that they're moving in the right direction now, but I just don't buy it. I mean, where does it, is there some kind of, uh, you know, codicil that's attached to the First Amendment that says, except when you're worried about corruption, you know, then you can restrict speech? David so, Keating. Uh, well, I'll come back to you. David Keating. You know, what, one, of the, one of the benefits of all this new regulation and all these new laws that we've had basically since the mid 1970s is we've been able now to track how, influ how attitudes about government have changed. And what has been found is the states that have the strongest laws, the most restrictive contribution limits, the people have no more faith in those governments than the states where there are unlimited contributions. This has no effect in the people's uh, opinion about the appearance of corruption or the corruption of policies at the state level. So it simply doesn't work if the idea is that people are going to have more faith in their government from these restrictive laws that are very complicated, burden speech and prevent grassroots groups from forming easily. They simply don't work. 
Sorry, one more point on this, Trevor. Well, on that, I think we have to recognize, it's not a reach at all, that there is in this a fundamental difference between the federal government in Washington and what is happening at the state level. The federal government has this enormous power. There are libertarians in the room will be happy I'm saying this, but it has this enormous power over uh, the purse, the tax system, uh, the way much of American life works. And so it makes sense that it, if you were seeking a major tax break, if you want uh, your aircraft carrier bought, the big money that you would be trying to influence what Congress does. Uh, that, it seems to me, is why we see the amount of money being spent on federal elections, and it's vastly more than is going to be spent in state elections because the, uh, the benefits of that extra money, if you get your aircraft carrier, your special tax break, uh, the bill that uh, hurts your opponent and saves you, that's huge for the, the interests that need that. All right. I want to I want to move to the point, David, when I interrupted you at the beginning in your opening comment, your, your opponent, um, Jonathan Soros, has described the the uh, the tangle of federal election laws uh, as a, as a Swiss cheese of of loopholes. It's ineffective. I, I, I don't know if cheese can be effective or ineffective, but you, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying. In other words, he's saying there are regulations, but they're not regulating. It's not working at any level. And I want you to take that point on. Well, I, I would agree that we need to have more clarity about what's permitted and what, what is not about fundraising candidates in these single-issue PACs. And I think uh, single-issue, uh, single-candidate super PACs. And I think part of the problem is no one has asked the question uh, whether a candidate can raise money for one of these single-candidate PACs. Uh, my view is the candidates cannot do that. And they should not be doing that. And I think it would be helpful if that was made clear. But so, the so laws. Just, so still, just to be clear, do we have agreement on this panel that there should be more regulation of super PACs? <laughs> no. No, that's <laughs> because that's not the rules. That, that, I'm not talking about regulating the people. I'm talking about regulating the candidates. To me, that's a different thing. When pe- <laughs> the um, but let me let me say the, the laws on coordination are actually. They're not as weak as you make them out to be. It's not just a matter of sharing inside information, although that's part of it. Uh, And it covers much more than independent expenditures. It's any communication that's run within 90 days of an election is covered by the laws on coordination. And a communication is considered coordinated if it meets one of just any one of five different tests. Uh, One is if the communication was requested or suggested by the candidate or if you suggested it somehow to the candidate and the candidate agreed. You don't need formal collaboration or formal agreement uh, to this from the candidate. If the candidate or their uh, committee or their party is materially involved in the decisions in any way, um, if someone creates the communication uh, after one or more substantial discussions about the campaign's plans, projects, or needs, or if they uh, employ a common vendor and use any of that information, or they use uh, someone who was previously employed by the campaign in the previous so, 120 so these, days. So these are all rules that, you, that are in place that you think are being enforced and that are effectively limiting speech already? That they're, that they're well, having I, this is part of, it, of maintaining the independence. I don't have a problem with that because I've said... I think independent groups, I think Americans should be able to get together and independently of the parties and the candidates be able to speak about where the country should be headed, what candidates should be elected, 
or what candidates should be defeated. But in the, I'm just a little unclear in the point that you were just making. Were, were you going through a list of rules that you feel you're you're, you're good with? The, these are the rules that exist today. Okay. I think a lot of people um, say, oh, there really aren't any laws against coordination. I, I mean, the idea that someone used to work for a candidate, it wouldn't be surprising that they would support the candidate. They probably worked okay. with them. They've seen the candidate as a good person, maybe a good leader potentially. It wouldn't be okay. surprising they'd want so to So Trevor Potter and Jonathan Soros, what David Keating says is there are rules in, in place and, they're, and they're, there's, there is regulation and uh, some of it they're okay with and that your argument that, that there's a Swiss cheese of, of loopholes is great exaggeration. Well, I, well, I heard David Trevor say Potter. it gives me great... Uh, hope in the outcome of the debate because I heard him say that there are rules in place. We may need more rules, uh, and that would seem to support our side of the proposition. Uh, but let's talk about the rules that are actually here. Uh, you know, David. I think David has to say that it's important that they be these groups be independent because the Supreme Court said in allowing these independent groups to exist that the reason they wouldn't corrupt and therefore could take unlimited money is they're totally independent of candidate and party committees. Uh, as, I, as I think Jonathan did a good job of saying, totally independent of candidate and party committees. Uh, you do have former uh, campaign uh, aides, lawyers, fundraisers for the candidates running these things. Uh, unfortunately, one of the few times the FEC has not deadlocked in the last couple of years was actually agreeing that candidates could raise money for these super PACs as long as they did so within only limited amounts. Uh, we have incidents this year of the candidates traveling with the principal funder of a super PAC, candidates thanking the super PAC when he left the race, saying he couldn't have done it without them. Uh, this seems to me not to be totally independent of candidates and parties. Jake yeah, Sullivan. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there is an issue here. I mean, it does. get rid of these limits on contributions to candidates, then you can raise whatever money you want to raise for your own message, and you will be responsible for your own message, and you can't play this game of saying, oh, we can't coordinate, I can't talk to them, uh, and you have to be responsible for your own speech. That's not to say that you get rid of the genuinely independent voices, but I think if what you're worried about this sort of sneakiness, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, a prostitute who pretends she's an escort, or you go into a head shop... <laughs> And they got all these fancy uh, water pipes, and it's for, you know, for use only with tobacco or other legal herbs. <laughs> and you might say, these are very dishonest people. But in fact, it's bad laws that produce that kind of dishonesty. So we've got bad laws we should get rid of. All right. I want to I go, go in a moment to you in the audience to take questions from you and to remind you that uh, I encourage you to, uh, um, to be terse in your questions, to try to uh, really make it a, a question. Uh, that's related to our topic, and I'm fine with you stating a short premise, but I really don't want you to make a speech because these are the guys who have to make the speeches. And what will happen is if I call on you, uh, there will be a microphone in the aisle passed over to you. Please stand up. We would appreciate it if you'll tell us your name and then hold the microphone about a fist distance uh, from your mouth. So as that is getting set up, I just want to take one more question, one more point back to the side that is arguing against super PACs from your opponents. Uh, it was very much a thrust of their argument that there's a First, first Amendment here 
issue in this. And you haven't uh, addressed at all whether, in fact, there is a valid core at all to their argument that there is a free speech issue here. And, and you, know, you, may, you may feel that there are other interests that outweigh it, or you may feel there is no free speech interest, but I want to hear your view on it. Is there anything to it? Uh, I, mean, I, actually think that, I actually think that Trevor acknowledged that in the first line of his, uh, of his remarks. That there is a there is a free speech uh, interest here, but what I and I wanted to I guess we're not going to go back and have time, but I, I was really startled by the comment about corruption not being a sufficient logic for uh, for 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 countervailing some of that. I mean, so to focus on Congress shall pass no law, that's just not true. We have lots of laws that curtail our speech in, in favor of some other public interest. And here there's a clear public interest in protecting the integrity of our electoral process from the possibility of corruption. Right. But it is, a, it is a curtailment of speech. Regulation of money and politics would be. Can be. Yeah. yeah and, can and, be. And, as, and again, as Trevor indicated, how the Supreme Court actually didn't do a terrible job with this when they when they when they addressed the question in uh, in Buckley to say there are different considerations when you are speaking yourself. That has a stronger interest than when you are giving money to other, fo to, to other folks when you're making a contribution. And so the limits and the rules that you put around that have to be appropriately tailored to, to how strong the interest is. Let's hear your partner's point on that, Trevor. Well, I mean, the answer is, of course, when you're talking about the First Amendment and political speech, you're going to have a, a free speech issue when you are regulating money in politics. But that doesn't, that just starts the question. It doesn't answer the question. The Supreme Court itself and Citizens United said government can't choose among speakers. Listeners have the right to hear every speaker. The government's role is not to decide who speaks. Great absolutist language. The next case that comes along is a group of foreigners who say, good, I want to speak. I live in New York. I happen to work here. I'm not a U.S. citizen. There's a law that says I can't speak. People should hear me. It's a First Amendment right of the American people to hear me. The court throws them out in their ear. So this is not a clean-cut issue. You, you look at this and balance, among other things, as the court has done, the integrity of our government, the importance that people have confidence in the decisions being made, uh, and then you look at where the money is spent, how it is disclosed, what we know. Th those are all aspects of this. All right. So Jacob Solomon, they're saying the free speech. It's another example where free speech is not an absolute right. Uh, well, I mean, this particular exception was just kind of pulled out of thin air. Um, uh, there are bases for other kinds of restrictions, like those that prevent fraud. I mean, that is kind of speech restriction, but it has to do with preventing a, a right violation. Um, and other, you know, other exceptions like obscenity, they don't necessarily agree with. But uh, I just never, I never have bought this particular argument. It seems invented from whole cloth. But I want to say one thing in favor of disagreeing rich people. Is that how you put it, Jonathan? Yes. I mean, don't knock them. Uh, I mean, first of all, you have people of more modest means, as David pointed out, who can pull their money as a result. Uh, of having super PACs, but there is something to be said for disagreeing rich people. I mean, you've got billionaires on, you know, who are favor Democrats, and you have billionaires who favor Republicans. You've got a, a bunch of rich guys who got together and put together a group called the Campaign for Primary Accountability, which I love because what they do is they go around the country, they look for entrenched incumbents of both parties, and they target them for defeat. And I think this is a great thing. And just to give you one example of, a, of, a, a, of what most people would consider to be a progressive outcome, uh, there was a congressional race in Texas where Sylvester Reyes, who was a longtime congressman, very comfortable, terrible on the war on drugs. He was challenged by a guy named uh, Beto O'Rourke. I think that's his name. He's a former city councilman. Um, and he got help from the campaign uh, for primary accountability. 
Um, and I, I don't know how much it helped him, but it presumably helped him somewhat. And he won. So you now have a guy who has written in favor of uh, legalizing marijuana in a book about, it, in fact, uh, says, we, you know, we need we need serious drug policy reform, replacing a hard line drug warrior, both Democrats. Right. So that's an example of how rich people, disagreeing rich people can can uh, aid progressive causes. And of course, in the in the Republican uh, presidential primaries, you had Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich. These are not the greatest examples, but they did hang in there a lot longer than they would have, thanks to rich guys who gave money to super PACs supporting them. Mitt Romney had challengers who were different in some particular ways from him, not identical, in some ways better than him on certain issues. Uh, you know, it's not a great group to pick among, but, uh, but, but it very clearly they could stay in that race. That race was more competitive than it otherwise would have been thanks to the super PAC money. I want to remind you, we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters arguing it out over this motion. Two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. Let's hear from our audience. I, that was, I'm considering using that applause. That was, <laughs> we could make that a moment. I'm going to pass, though. Uh, any hands up? Uh, on the far uh, gentleman on the aisle there. And if you wouldn't mind rising uh, so that we can see you. Thanks. Yes, my name is Jay Lipow. Uh, I've always believed that a fundamental right like free speech can be abrogated only if you can show a compelling state interest. And I haven't seen any evidence that the uh, presumption or the likelihood of corruption is satisfactory to prove a compelling state interest. There hasn't been shown any actual corruption, has there? All right. Challenge to the side that's arguing against super PACs. As I, Trevor I think I tried to explain earlier, there has. There are people who have gone to jail for actual corruption proved at trials. Uh, in the McCain-Feingold litigation, former members of Congress were interviewed by the other side who objected to the law, saying, did you ever see actual corruption? And the answer was yes. I, I saw that money changed what happened in the Congress of the United States. Either the desire to fundraise and get money from particular interests or the facts that they had given money to party committees and therefore party leaders said, we can't go after that, we can't do this. Can you, can you give us an exa a concrete example it's not quite hypothetical of the sort, uh, you know, were, did you, do you recall any specifics of any sort of deal that was done uh, that way? Sure. Um, Senator McCain testified uh, that in the Republican caucus, when the subject came up of tobacco legislation, uh, the Republican leader said they've just given us hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, this is something we really can't support. That, that's worrisome. Now, can Jacob, I, can I Solomon. Push? I want to push this definition of corruption a little bit. No, I no, but can you respond to that case, to, 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 to that example? If that happened, does that... If it, you know, you're talking about soft money, is that the deal? Correct. The soft yeah. contributions yeah. to parties. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that should be happening. Is that the question? Yeah, it should yeah. not be happening. Yeah, that's the question. But, but, yeah. this is, but, but seriously, think about what you have in mind when you say corruption. There's a guy, a state senator in New York, Roy McDonald, who voted in favor of the gay marriage bill. And the primary is tomorrow, Right. So he is, he is up uh, for re-election, or he's, he's, he's up for, for renomination tomorrow. And before he decided to vote in favor of the gay marriage bill, he had assurances from gay rights activists that they would help him raise money to support his campaign. Is that corruption? 
And I think that your idea of whether that is corruption is going to hinge on your, your policy views to a large extent. So keep that in mind. I'm, you know, just, just think about it. <laughs> Sir, on the aisle. Yep. Mike is coming to you from behind you. Thanks. Uh, Jamie Weinstein, uh, senior editor of The Daily Caller. Uh, Jacob kind of stole my, my thunder at the end with my question, but I would like to get uh, your side to answer it. Uh, he pointed to the, the Republican primary this year, uh, and it actually seems to be more competitive because of the super PACs. Gingrich and Santorum were able to uh, stay in the race longer uh, and, uh, and gave uh, Mitt Romney a challenge uh, where he otherwise may have been able to mow down them much more easily without a super PACs. Uh, isn't that a positive, more competitive elections? Well, what you had was huge contributions to uh, what Romney referred to as my super PAC, what Gingrich uh, clearly saw as his super PAC, uh, as a way of getting around the normal contribution limits. I don't know that that you know, was a particular benefit to anybody, that all the sides were uh, armored up uh, significantly larger than they normally would be in a primary. You're right, the primary went on longer because instead of having to worry about for Gingrich, whether there were donors who would support him uh, and how he could keep going when he kept losing primaries, all he had to worry about was whether he made one man happy or not. <laughs> and under these coordination regulations, he could go meet with that man and talk to him. So I just want to, I want to echo that. I, mean, I, think, I think that the, the issue is what would have happened if Newt Gingrich had won the primary? What would we, what would we, would we have been asking about what he owed to Sheldon Adelson? for the support that he got during the primary. And also, how could we have done this? What's that? <laughs> so I, I want to, I just want to, you know, we keep talking about this, the, the question of corruption, and I want to, I want to I go back to this notion a little bit of, of integrity, briefly. Right? The, the, what we're talking about, in part, when we talk about corruption and the appearance of corruption, is whether or not people believe in the integrity of the political process that people are representing them. And I'll just comment that there's actually nothing in our current limit system to give people a lot of, uh, to give people a lot of confidence. As I said in my opening, right, when you've got contribution limits of $2,500, those are out of reach for most, for most people in America, and $25,000. Right? So you end up with a very, very small fraction of people who are contributing as it is. It's, it seems like the system actually designed to maximize the amount of time that candidates spend with rich people. Right. That's a problem. That's one of the reasons that I said at the end, we really need to be focused on an alternative as well to focusing on a system where candidates can run for public office, where they're not dependent on these on these contributions. There's a gentleman in a white, fully white shirt. Um, could you, sir, could you stand forward a little bit uh, just uh, into the more lit area so the camera can see you? Hi. Uh, this question is for the in the affirmative of the motion. Um, you still maintain that money in politics is still overregulated. So I'm just wondering where you find it to be still overregulated and what the right amount of regulation should be. David uh, Keating. Well, I, oh, Jacob Sullivan. Yeah, I, I just briefly. Uh, I did mention I, I think that they should get rid of the limits on contributions. I think a lot of this, this the, the, the false independence that you're worried about, this apparent dishonesty, um, the evasions and so forth, um, come out of that. And what happens historically with campaign finance regulations, they impose one rule, people find a way around it. They impose a new rule, people find a way around that, and so on and so on and so on. And speech gets more and more restricted. The regulations get more and more complex and intimidating for the average person who might want to get politically involved. And I think we need to we cut our losses and make things as simple as possible. I don't buy the distinction between giving versus spending. I think if spending is speech, giving is also speech. 
or it amounts to pay to restrict, restrict giving. So there should be no, no limits on giving. Um, I am all, sort of on the fence about disclosure rules. I think it's, it's legitimate to require candidates as a condition for running for office to disclose donors. What do you, but I don't think it's necessarily legitimate to require disclosure for uh, independent spenders. There's an argument to be made uh, that that chills speech. In fact, it's designed to chill speech. David Keating, would you, would you add any other well, to that list? There's a, first of all, I would agree with a, a lot of that. The, uh, I, I do think it makes sense to allow candidates to decide when they file as a candidate what the contribution limit will be, if any, and let the voters decide. So if they want to accept unlimited contributions, the candidates can do that. If the candidates will agree with each other to accept a limit, whether it's today's limit of $2,500 or some other limit of, say, $10,000, let them do that and let the voters decide, do I trust this person taking these kinds of money from these kind of people? So I think that makes sense. Now, there are lots of other laws and regulations. As I said, there's the laws and regulations have 376,000 words. Um, for a lot of small grassroots groups that just want to say something about their member of Congress, as soon as they spend $1,000, they have to file with the Federal Election Commission. A lot of people just can't navigate these forms and these regulations. And then it's not clear what they're allowed to say and what they're not allowed to say. There are regulations describing what's express advocacy that's regulated by the Federal Election Commission. But people look at the regulation and they don't know what it means. And in fact, we helped a group that had a question about a number of ads. They submitted nine ads to the Federal Election Commission and the commission itself couldn't agree whether it was regulated speech or not. This is not a situation that is good for our country where people want to speak out about what's going on in the election and they have to hire a lawyer to do it. We've got to simplify the thing so the election law is not more complicated than the tax law. All right. I, you know, I'm just thinking that so far this evening, counting myself, the debaters, the questioners, Bob Rosencrantz, we have heard eight men speaking. Are any women going to raise their hands with questions? Because I'm looking, but I'm not seeing. Right in the middle. I, you know, have, to, have you been doing that the whole time? Oh, you're in the dark. I'm sorry, I can't see you. I just want to ask, is that okay for the camera that you're in the shadows there? Yeah, you can pick it up. I okay. was just wondering for the proponents of free speech, without regulation, how do you differentiate between me supporting a candidate with my voice or me going to the store and buying Scott's miracle Grow and having my support of green lawns representing a political concern because that company is is supporting a, yes. a particular cause you mean yes Scott Smith will grow a well, actually, I mean that's an issue that hasn't actually come up but that was one of the arguments that uh, the Obama administration used in favor of uh, keeping the regulations that were overturned in Citizens United they said there was not only this concern about corruption, but also a shareholder interest. And I guess you're talking about a consumer interest, but it's somewhat similar. I think the answer in both cases is the same. If you're a shareholder in a company, you don't like their political speech, you, you, can, you can sell those shares or you can object at a shareholder meeting. If you're a consumer and you don't like the political speech of the, of the company you're buying from, you can stop buying from them. So I mean, you, can, you can protest as well, uh, but you, do, you, know, you have the power to decide where your money is going based on that consideration. Jonathan Source. 
So I, I'm glad. Thank you very much for raising that. I'm glad that this came up because we haven't talked at all about the corporate question, which was actually what Citizens United was originally about. So that's an interesting uh, theoretical argument. The problem is Scott's Miracle Grow decided voluntarily to use their to fund a super PAC, right, which is one of the few instances of a public company doing that. So if they decide to give their money in a way that's not disclosed, then as a consumer, you have no idea about it. And as a, and as a shareholder, you have no idea about it. The second, the second thing is that as a shareholder, you may very well have no ability to do anything about it anyway. So let's, I mean, the issue of corporate democracy, we could go on for a long time. But let's just stick with somebody who owns those shares through a pension fund. Right? 47 states in this union, if you're a public employee, you're required to put your money into a pension fund. That money can go anywhere. It can go into any company and you have no control over it. So there's a problem with with corporations speaking because they're speaking on behalf of other people that don't that, that don't have the ability to give their consent. And you can also suggest maybe you shouldn't have to give your consent in order to participate in the in the modern economy of, of, of owning shares. Another question? I'm still, I'm still gender hunting, right, right in the center. You were the only woman, and, and from seats and seats around. But then I'm going to go back to uh, gender blind after that. Do you mind standing up too, please? Thanks. No. Um, and, and, and we'd just like to ask your name. Okay, my name is Deborah Drickerson, and um, just going back to David's point that. Um, that people have a right to sort of organize themselves or people have a right to change their government. It seems that we just, we're getting into this long conversation about how to regulate money, but on the other hand, you're kind of saying that money doesn't really influence politics. Um, I wanted to go back to what uh, Mr. Soros is saying. Why, what could we look at as a different system, such as campaign finance reform or public funding of, of campaigns, and how do you think about that? David Keating. Well... I, the question is uh, whether we should have tax-funded campaigns. And it's very hard to design such a system. I think there are a lot of problems with it. I mean, we talk about disconnecting candidates from the people. If they don't have to raise money for their campaigns, we're disconnecting them ad additionally. But there's also real questions of how you design such a system so that it's attractive so the candidates will even want to do it. Uh, we have tax-funded campaigns for the presidential candidates, and in this election, both candidates have decided to forego that financing. In other states where they've designed these tax-funded campaign systems, uh, they've designed them in such a way as to penalize uh, independent groups that speak out. Now, the Supreme Court has struck down those provisions, but it makes it even more difficult to, de to design such a system. So... I don't think it's terribly workable, uh, for one. Uh, second, I don't think it's politically possible to pass either. Uh, when you put together the, the words basically tax funding and politicians together, it's not popular. People don't like paying taxes. They don't like their money going to politicians. They don't like politicians generally. So I think if we're looking for solutions to try to make our government more accountable, uh, to provide cleaner government, uh, that that's not something that's probably going to work politically. Sir, on the aisle. Yeah. Uh, thank you. My name is Stanley Fish, uh, New York Times professor of law and author of a book called There's No Such Thing as Free Speech, and it's a good thing, too. Uh, I, 
I had a question uh, for Mr. Keating, who said at the beginning of his address that the issue is, do we value the First Amendment and keep it as it is, which suggested that there was a First Amendment that was libertarian in the form that he likes it. But in fact, as I think you know, that's a product of the last 35 years. As early as, as recently as 1942, in Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire, there was a paragraph listing all of the forms of speech that do not deserve constitutional protection. Mr. Fishkin, can, can, you, can you land this as a question? Sure. Thanks. In 71, Bork, Bork made the argument that only political speech could be protected. So that your I, I'm sorry, can you, I, I, I need you to bring the mic in and just do that last part again. Your First Amendment is a very recent invention, in fact, an invention that began with New York Times versus Sullivan, which I think is one of the worst cases ever decided. Okay. Uh, you don't have well, to respond to that because it wasn't a question. <laughs> that was a speech. Well, can I, that was one of those things that, I don't want to have happening. In that case, can I go back to that last point? Because I think it's, yeah, I think sure, it's an important one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, because what I heard it, it, as an argument against uh, the citizen funding is essentially that it's uh, unpopular. Uh, and that it's hard. And I think both of those things are, are true, but I don't think this is a debate about what's politically popular or not. It's a debate about what's the right answer. So you can design a system that actually drives politicians towards their constituents. I described it in, uh, in my opening remarks. It's the system we have in New York City where you only get the funding from the city when you raise money from your constituents in small dollars. That transforms the way that people, uh, uh, people raise money in this city. And you have to make it big enough to, it's true, we still have on the books a presidential public financing system. I don't know what it is this year, but in 2008, it was worth about $110 million. So that's just not a relevant number anymore. It has to be robust enough that a candidate opting into the system believes that they can really run a, a, a credible campaign. How, how many of you I, checked I, off the, the little box on your tax return that said you were willing Jacob to Sullivan. give money to that fund? David Keating. Well, I... I I find Wait, did you, did you want an audience response on this? I think it's a fair question. You were asking how many people no, have actually it checked like off? like most people did not. Is that accurate? Who, who checked off the box for that fund? So you, right here in this oh. audience, which I suspect is disproportionately in favor of this sort of thing, you <laughs> well, can't even just, get a majority just here. Just for our radio audience, let's, let's mention that all the hands went up. Of, of election. <laughs> Nearly all the hands went up. Anyway, I, I actually David found Keating. it kind of amusing that we're pointing to New York City's council as a model of clean government. <laughs> I mean, Jonathan, Jonathan just described a system of tax-funded elections that's the model they want to take to the rest of the country. And we're looking at New York City's council as a model of great representation produced by this. I, for one, don't agree with that. You look at the quality of the lawmaking coming out of there and you know, it doesn't seem to work. So I don't think we want to copy that model. Sir, in the next time. Hi, um, my name is Gil Hyde. I do high school debate um, here in the city. Um, and I have a question that's more theoretical than anything else. Um, you talk about the appearance of corruption. Both teams have. And my question is um, the appearance of corruption versus actual corruption, whether it would make a difference if we didn't see the corruption um, towards the debate. <laughs> That's a great point, because the response to the appearance of corruption is you just hide it, and then people don't worry about it, and Jacob it's not a problem. Uh, but yes, I think that is a problem, because it hinges on something that may not be real. Um, and this whole notion that, that would underlies this, that you want people to have faith in your government, ought to be controversial. 
There's such a thing as having too much faith in your government. Some people look at these declining ratings for Congress um, and the federal government and they say this is terrible. People are losing faith in the government. Other people look at that and they say, thank God, voters are finally wising up. Right. And so that obviously that's going to depend on your own views about how big government should be, what it should be doing and so forth. But it is not an uncontroversial idea that everyone should have faith in the government. Chick, I'm sorry. I so, so that may mean that uh, we would have been better off if we'd never known that the Nixon administration sold milk price supports uh, for two million dollars to the uh, yeah. milk people and sold uh, an antitrust case to ITT. Um, and the, what the court said is you have to worry about both. You have to worry about actual corruption uh, because that means that government is not doing its job. It's not impartially deciding in the common good. Uh, and you have to worry about the appearance because if citizens think that's what's going on and they look at all this money and they look at who's getting it and the way these super PACs are working linked closely to candidates and think, well, I don't have any role in this, uh, you know, they're all in a league different than mine, and they're getting something for their money, that appearance is a problem for us, too. One more question, sir. Right in the, oh, right down the front here. Thanks. Mike is coming. I guess I get the, uh, the women vote then, right? Um, yeah. I've heard you guys, my name's Kim Barker, and I've heard you talk a lot about super PACs this evening and some mention of social welfare nonprofits and trade associations. I guess I'd like to ask both sides what role you think those anonymous donation groups are going to play this election and to get a defense of anonymous money in politics and, and, and also why it might not be so good. The, you're asking for a defense of anonymity in politics? Uh, anonymous money, these, the trade associations and the social welfare nonprofits. Yeah. Such as the know. National Rifle Association, the Sierra Club, yeah, organizations yeah, yeah. Um, like that, do not have to disclose who their donors yeah, are. Okay. GPS, and you're asking for somebody, and you're looking for a defense of that defense anonymity. And also um, why that's an not attack. so good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think it's the case, and David can correct me if I'm wrong, that it's actually just a small percentage of the money for super PACs that comes from these nonprofits. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you meant donations. Super. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, like you look at Crossroads GPS, for Right. Okay. As I said before, I think there really is a value in, in not having to disclose the people who are supporting these groups. I mean, imagine somebody who supports, say, Normal and doesn't want his employer to know that or supports NARAL or fill in your favorite group, whatever, whatever it is. You can imagine reasons why people don't want their support to be widely known. And in fact, this has been recognized to some extent by the Supreme Court in a case involving the NAACP where I think it was at Alabama, uh, wanted, yes. wanted to force them to disclose all of their supporters. Wait, um, let's, and the let's, Supreme Court said, no, this is... We're all going to close our eyes. And this the is person, hinges on freedom wait, of... Wait, wait, the, the, the phone is interfering. We're gonna, okay, resume. The Supreme Court said, basically, if you have to reveal who all your supporters are for, for a group that's engaged in advocacy that's controversial, that obviously has a chilling effect. It, sh it chills freedom of association and freedom of speech, too. So I think there is an argument, a strong argument to be made uh, against forcing those groups to disclose uh, who their supporters are. Jonathan Soros. So the NAACP's, uh, NAACP case is a popular uh, argument in response, and there are a lot of reasons why uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. But one of, first of all, it stands also for the proposition that there is an exemption for disclosure if there's a, if there's a real threat to the members for, from disclosure, a clear, in, in Alabama at that time, there were clearly threats to members. There's also no state interest at all in getting that membership list in NAACP. So a couple of things on the, on the, on the information. First of all, elections are different. 
right? Elections, so there actually, there's lots of anonymous political speech in, uh, in our society. We don't go around looking for the, for the sources of those speech. But when you're talking about advocating for the election of, an, uh, of someone who's going to represent their population and you want to have that clear, that clear connection between the electorate and, uh, and the elected official to know that they're actually representing their constituency, elections are different. There's an informational component, right? So you want to be able to evaluate the message that you're hearing. And part of that information, part of being able to evaluate that is the, is knowing who's speaking. Uh, uh, Jonathan, I have to step in because we hit our time limit. And I want to say that's the conclusion of round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And here's where we are. We're about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. These will be two minutes each. It is their chance, their last chance to try to affect how you will vote at the end of this debate. Remember, you voted before the debate, and we're going to ask you to vote again at the end on this motion. Two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. So on to round three, closing statements here to speak against the motion. Two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. Trevor Potter. He is president and general counsel of the Campaign Legal Center. Thank you. I'd like you to imagine a state where industrial hog operators began to worry about proposed new environmental regulations that would prevent them from dumping untreated waste into local rivers. Imagine they formed a group called, say, Farmers for Fairness, to persuade legislators to block such regulation. Imagine they created some campaign ads which attacked legislators by name, never mentioning hog farming at all, but claiming legislators were not in touch with our values. But now imagine that Farmers for Fairness did not go out and run these ads, but instead scheduled meetings with legislators and screened the advertisements for them in private. Imagine Farmers for Fairness told the legislators privately that they would hate to run these ads, but would do so if the legislators didn't vote the way they wanted. You don't have to imagine that. It happened in North Carolina, documented by a federal judge in a case called Life versus Leak. But today, a super PAC nonprofit could do this in Congress with huge sums of unlimited, undisclosed money at their disposal, and we might never know it happened. Two cheers for super PACs? I don't think so. That would be a problem even if the super PACs complied with the Supreme Court's assumptions about no coordination at all with candidates and party committees, and full disclosure of all this money being spent in elections. Uh, that is not the system we need. Thank you, Trevor Potter. Our motion is two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated, and here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Jacob Sullum, a senior editor at Reason Magazine. So during the first round of arguments in Citizens United, uh, Deputy Solicitor General Malcolm Stewart was asked, well, if you can ban this movie, Hillary the movie, um, what about if you had very similar material, but it was presented in a different medium like DVDs 
or on the Internet or even in books. And he said that would be constitutionally permissible, too. Um, this was pretty shocking because it raised the possibility that the government could ban books in the name of fighting corruption. And it was widely seen as a turning point in the case. They had a second round of oral arguments, which was very unusual, prompted largely by this revelation. And during that round, the Solicitor General, Elena Kagan, said the government had changed its answer. Uh, she said there would be a strong constitutional case against punishing an organization for publishing a book, but that pamphlets were different because they were classic electioneering. Well, that raised new questions. You know, when does a pamphlet become a book? Is it a matter of the number of pages? Is it the kind of cover it has, the binding, or what? Now, uh, the media exemption that, that I alluded to before, upon close examination, looks equally arbitrary. Citizens United, after all, was producing movies. So why was that Citizens United not a media corporation? Uh, the NRA started a radio show, a daily radio show, after McCain-Feingold was passed. And they said, look, we're a media corporation. We're exempt. Um, is that not, if that's legitimate, then why couldn't every advocacy group do the same sort of thing? Um, it, does the Internet count as a medium? Presumably it does. Then it, doesn't every group that has a website qualify as a media corporation? This media exemption puts the government in the position of deciding who deserves to have unfettered freedom of speech and who does not, which is precisely the sort of distinction that the First Amendment is supposed to prohibit. And whether you're worried about uh, corruption or you're worried about undue influence, the arguments for regulation are just, are just as strong and not stronger in the case of media corporations. So while many of my fellow journalists have supported these kinds of regulations, basically lobbying to keep their own special speech privileges, it's always seemed foolish to me uh, for people who make a living by talking about politics to appoint the government as a sort of national debate moderator because you never know when the moderator will decide that it's time for you to shut up. Your time is up, Jacob Sullivan. Thank you. Our motion, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Jonathan Soros, senior fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and co-founder of Friends of Democracy. So um, I'm going to return to this question of uh, Scott's miracle grow, because what's not part of the story yet is that last week, Scott's was fined twelve and a half million dollars for violations of federal pesticide laws for, among other things, putting toxic insecticide in their bird seed. It was killing birds. Now, they got caught doing that. And actually, they, as far as I can tell, acted admirably. They admitted it. They pled guilty. They uh, entered into, into an agreement. But they were caught in it, and, and that was dealt with because we have laws that protect uh, clean elections. Excuse me, laws that protect clean air and clean water, and we have an enforcement agency that deals with that. In June, they gave $200,000 to the pro-Romney Super PAC Restore Our Future. This is not that it was Romney or Obama, but they gave money to the Super PAC. There are no laws in place after Citizens United, no clear legal regime that would require them to disclose that information, so that their consumers would know about it, so that their shareholders would know about it, so that anybody else would know about it. If that is say, they could have done, used a different organization other than a super PAC and done basically the same thing. And we have no effective regulatory agency that will provide us with clean elections. A lot of what our opponents have talked about is essentially arguing from the past. They're arguing from pre-Citizens United, pre-Speech Now. We, d we deserve disclosure of contributions. We deserve an effective disclosure regime. We deserve something that protects our, our, the integrity of our political process. The proposition that we're arguing is whether money in politics is still overregulated. The answer to that is clearly no.
Thank you, Jonathan Soros. The motion, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, David Keating, president of the Center for Competitive Politics. Well, since we passed the major campaign finance restrictions in the early 1970s, we've seen competition decline dramatically. Uh, we used to see elections that were far more competitive than they are today. The re-election rate has gone up, not down. But fundamentally, I think what we have to keep in mind here is when who is going to write these restrictions? Who is going to write the campaign finance laws and regulations? Well, the answer is it's going to be the incumbent members of Congress. There is no other way to write them. And if there was ever a conflict of interest about how this was going to be written, that's a conflict. They get to write the regulations so they probably will write them so that they will be able to have a better chance at keeping their jobs. They're not so much concerned about our freedom of speech or our ability to criticize the job they're doing. In fact, they would like to see less criticism of it. So basically, this is a debate about who decides what you can say. Should it be us, the people, getting together and deciding, or should it be the politicians and should it be the prosecutors who are looking to make a name for themselves? You have to keep in mind many of these laws that are written not only have civil penalties, but criminal penalties. And if you think that's far-fetched, the very first political prosecution taken under these laws was a group that took out a full-page ad urging Nixon's impeachment for the invasion of Cambodia. That was the first prosecution under the campaign finance laws. I would say free speech is messy, but the cure of additional regulations written by politicians who want to stay in office is worse than any disease of free speech. So I hope you will support the motion. Two cheers or three cheers for super PACs. Three cheers for independent action by the people. Thank you, David Keating. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side you and the audience feel has, feels has voted the best. We are asking you, again, to go to the keypad at your seat that will register your vote. We're going to get the readout on this almost instantaneously. The motion is two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still over-regulated. If you feel the side argued best, push number one. The opposing side, push number two. If you are or became undecided, Push number three, and you can ignore all of the other keys and correct your vote, and it will just register the last vote. Okay, so while you're doing that and while the votes are being tabulated, the first thing I want to say is that uh, this was, for us, uh, relaunching this season in the midst of a political campaign. It was just about a perfect uh, just about a perfect target for us. And um, I think all of us at our Intelligence Squared are really, really impressed by the level of debate that these panelists brought to this. It, 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 was, it was very serious and informational without being medicinal. It was terrific. So thank you for that. And also, I want to say sometimes we have some tricky times with audience questions. Questions tonight were terrific. So to everybody who uh, got up there and had the nerve, thank you very much for that. Um, a few things about what's coming down the road. Um, first of all, uh, we, 
anybody who was tweeting tonight, thank you for that. And you are welcomed and encouraged by us to tweet after the debate and get the word out about us. Uh, our uh, Twitter handle is at IQ2US, and the hashtag is the same, IQ2US. Our next debate is on Thursday, October 4th. The motion is better elected Islamists than dictators. Arguing in support of this motion, we're going to have Rule Mark Garrett, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and a former CIA Middle East specialist. Brian Katulis, he is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress who has been focusing on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and South Asia. Arguing against this motion, Daniel Pipes, he is president of the Middle East Forum. He is described as perhaps the most prominent U.S. scholar on radical Islam by the Washington Post. And uh, Zudi Jasser, he is president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, which he founded to advocate for the separation of mosque and state. October 10th, everybody get on a plane and fly to Chicago because we are we're going to be doing a debate there. We're taking part uh, in the second annual Chicago Ideas Week. There we are debating the motion ration end of life care. I may later pronounce it ration. I haven't decided yet. But you get the point. Um, tickets and more information about all of the upcoming fall debates can be found on our website, www.iq2us.org. And if you can't make it to the next debate, um, watch the live stream as we had tonight. Our new partner is the Wall Street Journal's video initiative, WSJ Live. Uh, and you, as I said at the very beginning, you can listen to all of our debates uh, online and this particular debate uh, on WNYC here in New York. Our turnaround time is usually uh, several days. And um, just look at check in with their schedule and also for the televised version, WNET and the World Digital Channel. All right. We have the results in. Remember, our motion is this two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. You heard the heated and intelligent arguments. We've asked you to vote twice, both before the debate and again at the end of the debate. And the team whose numbers have moved the most will be declared our winner. And it goes like this. Before the debate, 19 percent were for the motion. Sixty three percent were against. Eighteen percent undecided. After the debate, 22 percent are for the motion. That's up three percent. 69% are against. That is up 6%. 9% are undecided. That's down 9%. That means that the side arguing against the motion in a squeaker has carried this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan. We'll see you next time from Intelligence Squared U.S.